We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. there Knicks fans how you doing it's your boy Jonathan Macri with you for another episode of the Knicks Film School podcast uh we are continuing along with our uh team-centric pods uh as we lead up to the NBA draft and free agency and trade season and all that jazz uh today we have on absolutely without question one of the best at what they do covering a team covering any team in the NBA Caitlin Cooper of Indy Cornrows um, who, if you're even a little bit on Twitter or familiar with, you know, people who write about the league or teams in the league, I'm sure you're familiar with Caitlin's work. She is, again, I cannot emphasize this enough, as good at covering the Pacers as anybody is at covering any team um, in the NBA. So we talked all the usual suspects. Brogdon, uh, we, we talked about, you know, some draft prospects. We got a little Miles Turner stuff in there. Uh, we went off on a few different tangents and had some fun. You're going to enjoy the conversation a lot. Uh, and yeah, I'm not even going to say anything else. So uh, without further ado, here is Caitlin Cooper. Joining me now on the Knicks Film School podcast, uh, a returning guest, someone I am always honored 
to speak to. Um, I actually, I think the first time I reached out to her was for some insight on Victor Oladipo back when Victor Oladipo was like a thing that might happen and a max contract and all of that stuff, which has since gone by the wayside. And uh, then we talked about Miles Turner and now we're here to talk about, I don't know, some other stuff. Uh, she is uh, as good a writer as you will find uh, out there. And she also has a spectacular podcast of Indie Cornrows, Caitlin Cooper. Hello. Hey, I'm glad to be back and glad to always be talking about Pacers that never turn out to be Knicks. So, I'm because I you remember the Oladipo thing, right? Yes, I, I do. Like, As a newsletter, and we did an email Q and A. Yeah, that's. Oh no, it wasn't even. It was. Oh my goodness. Okay, we're gonna go back for a second. It was. The, so the Strickland. Uh, shout out to the Strickland. They do fantastic work covering the Knicks. I was like doing a guest column for them once a week. And it was the whole, the idea with the col- behind the column was like, I would have an email exchange with someone about a topic of pertinence. And I was like, Oh, I'll reach out to Caitlin, talk about Victor Oladipo. And you were like, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think it's going to happen either. And that was fun. And, and then we talked it. about <laughs> how long was that? Was that three years, two years? Yeah. It was after the bubble. It was after the, it was in between the bubble and yeah, last season. Yeah. Everything um, blends together in Pacers time. Cause there's been so many different coaches and so many different, uh, people on the roster. <laughs> that's, that's true. I mean, um, it's funny. I was, I was reading. Oh yeah. I was reading your, I'm going all, I'm going rogue right away. I was reading, I think your Johnny Davis piece and you were referencing like the Collison Oladipo crew with, uh, what was the guard that would come in and like, was very good defensively. Corey Joseph. That's it. Corey Joseph. Yep. I was like, man, that was, that's bringing me back. The film room, all-star Corey Joseph. <laughs> Every team has to have a film room all star. Like Frank Milikina, that was one of the reasons we loved him because he was he was indeed a film room all star. Um, yes. Not a not a real life all star, unfortunately, for the Knicks and their fans. Um, yeah, and then we talked about Turner. I probably like before the deadline last year. Um, that didn't happen, and then he injured his foot. Uh, so harbinger of wonderful things. And now, uh, you know, Malcolm Brogdon, how you doing? What's going on? Yeah, I've seen those rumors pop up. It sounds like, and from you guys' perspective, are you under the impression that Malcolm Brogdon is the backup plan to Jalen Brunson for the New York Knicks? Like, if they do not get Jalen Brunson, then they will come knocking for Malcolm Brogdon. So this is really interesting because I think, obviously, they've made... they've. <laughs> It's not like they've tried to hide it, uh, as we were just talking about a minute ago. They hired the, the man's father, although the, there's connections with, with Tibbs and there's probably other reasons for that, but neither here nor there. Um, they've made no attempt to hide that they want Jalen Brunson. I, I think, let me put it this way. I don't think any Nick fan believes that the starting point guard of the 2022-23 New York Knicks is on the roster. So we could start there. I also don't think anybody believes the starting point guard of the 22-23 New York Knicks, barring what I would still consider to be a shocking trade-up, and we'll talk about trade uh, draft stuff in a bit, um, for Jade Nivey, I don't think that player is going to be in the draft. And unless you think Tyus Jones is going to take New York's mid-level exception, which like I, I don't know, I know you watch a lot of NBA ball. Tyus Jones is a pretty good player. I think he's probably going to get a little bit more than that from Memphis, right? Yeah. Whereabouts, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So what are the options? You know, it's like, what are, if New York is a team, which they allegedly are, that wants to 
not like go for a ring now because they obviously can't, but like it's not planning on tanking and they want to improve at the point guard position. You tell me where where else are you looking for like obvious point guard trade candidates out there on the on the more? I I don't I, I trust me. I've thought, thought about this a lot and I don't really have anybody else. And that's why I think. I think that that like kind of he's there is perpetuating a lot of the Brogdon stuff, but also like, you know, that's what I want to talk to you about is like, are they looking to move on from him? And that's what, one of the things I'm, I'm curious about. Yeah. I mean, they don't give, they didn't do like a regular exit interview with Kevin Pritchard when the season was over, similar to, I know what the situation is with the Knicks and not having that Kevin Pritchard did talk after the draft lottery. And it, it feels to me like they're really leaving their options open, which I think is the correct approach. I mean, even just in the draft, the ability to, I mean, he was very clear that, you know, we got the number six pick, but that doesn't mean that's where we're going to pick as in we could move up, we could move okay. down. Um, Rick Carlisle, just from his perspective, always speaks very highly of Malcolm Brogdon. Um, we'll say he's a game changer, talks about liking that they can have two point guards out on the floor. But I also think that Rick Carlisle is always very careful with his words for the most part and sometimes has a reason for why he's saying things. So you can read into that as you will. But from the Pacers perspective, if you look like Malcolm had a lot of injury issues this year as he has the prior two seasons. So I think he only played 36 games this year. Um, Started out with, it wasn't a hamstring issue, but it was like a fascia issue, connective tissue around the hamstring missed time early. And then the Achilles thing pops up to the point where right before the trade deadline, they kind of decided, Hey, we need to shut you down for a time. We're going to shut you down for 10 games. And then the trade happens with Tyrese and he doesn't play until after the all-star break. So he comes back and decides he wants to play for those eight games, wants to show these, he wants to compete because he's a competitor. What did you make I, of that? It was, how, or how was that taken, I should say? As in, do you think that they were resting him because they didn't want to win games? or any, um, Yeah, like... I think, <laughs> I think it was mutually beneficial to an extent. I think that Malcolm is a competitor, wanted to come back, show that he could play. And then at a certain point in time when they were probably looking at where some of the rankings were and that they were jockeying with position for the Kings and a couple other teams that could potentially move up. They just decided, Hey, let's not risk your Achilles. Let's just go ahead and let okay. you sit the rest of this time. But I mean, he said when the season was over that he feels good and is healthy and is prepared to come back next year. But um it's, it's when you look at what injuries he's had over the last three seasons, it's a little bit concerning because they're never the same thing. And they always build as the season goes on. So like before the bubble, he had like the, it's a muscle that goes from your thigh to your hip that had like a slight tear in it. I love and, that muscle. It's good. Muscle. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know the technical term for it, but <laughs> so if, don't, don't ask me any of these if, medical questions. If there please. wasn't um, the hiatus, he probably would not have been able to play in the playoffs, but because the hiatus happened, he was able to come back and play. Then the next year under Nate Bjorkren, they go on the play in tournament and he's out for an extended period of time with a hamstring, but he did play in the play in tournament. And then this year the Achilles injury pops up. So like from the Knicks perspective, I might be a little bit concerned with like a Malcolm Brogdon Tibbs pairing, because it's pretty clear to me, especially, especially in the Nate Bjorkren system that he was playing too many minutes to start the beginning of the season. So, and that he needs to, he needs to have a lesser load. I don't think he can be the guy like at the beginning of this season, his numbers in terms of time of possession touches were comparable to what Luca did with Rick Carlisle in Dallas. Sure, I don't think that's too much for him to be doing with the amount of injury history that he has and how he wears down. But um, back to those games with Tyrese, which is the real point of this long ramble. No, I, I want to get back to some of this other stuff too, but keep going. Yeah. 
Um, the net rating when those two were on the floor was not particularly good. They got outscored by 17 points per 100. And that was only like a couple hundred minutes. So you got to take it with a grain of salt. And there's a lot of context that needs to go there. Obviously, Brogdon had not played in a very long time. He was on a minute restriction for the first couple games, then sat out the second night of a back-to-back and then ended up sustaining a concussion during um, the period of those games before he came back and played again. And also, like, they did play some better teams. Um, I think they played, like, four or five top defensive teams over that period. But um, I think but from could, what I recall, like, it didn't – wasn't there – because I know Jeremy uh, listened to you talk about this. There was some friction, right, between – not maybe not friction is the wrong word, but how, how would you describe yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, I think they both were very um, congenial, I guess I would say, when they talked about it publicly. I don't think that they're opposed to playing with each other. Just stylistically, they're somewhat diametrically opposed. Like, I see a lot of people talking about, oh, the Pacers traded for Tyrese. That means they need to get rid of Malcolm because there's a lot of overlap there. I don't think they're they're very similar players. Like, Tyrese more relies on like the quickly floater game, the lob pass combo, the skip pass. Malcolm Brogdon is very methodical, whereas Tyrese really wants to get the ball up the floor. Like the minute, even if off opposing teams make, he wants to get it and push. Whereas Malcolm's more kind of a walk it up guy play. Like I said, with a methodical approach and you could see that kind of push and pull when they're on the floor together, especially during fourth quarters at times. And even just how they approach like isolation possessions is very different because Malcolm is the type of person where like, especially if you look on synergy, but I mean, you can see it with your eye test too, that like if if he's going off a ball screen and he goes left, he's almost exclusively going to drive. And if he goes right, he will shoot. So a lot of teams do the weaking coverage. They're going to take the pick away and force him into that and force him to drive into a crowd because that's what he does. Then a lot of opponents also duck under the screens because his pull up three point rate, especially going to the left is very shaky. So there's ways to scheme around Brogdon. And then the reverse, Tyrese is somebody that against a switch. His numbers look good against switching and against isolations, but he can be very deferential. Um, Sometimes he doesn't even take good shots and he really leans on jump shots in those situations, step backs. So depending upon who the opponent is, you know, you have two sides of, you know, both sides of the coin. You know, if you need somebody that can drive against a switch, you have Malcolm. If you don't, you have Tyrese, but I don't find them to be, very similar. It's just that stylistically, like to give an example, they played the Pistons. This was a game they lost. They're in the fourth quarter. I think it's about like six minutes to go in that game. And Tyrese gets a switch against Killian Hayes and he just can't get into the paint with that length. Like a lot of Tyrese's drives are like, you know, 10 feet from the basket is where the drive kind of ends, which he's very good with eye manipulation and being able to, like I said, read the skip pass lob floater combo and his overall feel for the game is very good. But there was a switch at that point where it's like, okay, now the offense is going to start being run through Malcolm. And then okay. every possession with Detroit switching and Isaiah Stewart really improved. I felt at switching out onto guards he's, this season. I would agree. Yeah. So Malcolm's just running everything and it just becoming isolations and all drive isolations. And he's not the best finisher in the world. And Tyrese is being an observer when it felt very much like, at least from my perspective, at a certain point in time, if you can't score in the half court, you need to start, you know, picking up the pace. You need to get into actions quicker. And even after a timeout, they're inbounding the ball and it's to Malcolm. So I think that the Pacers moving forward and what they said after the trade deadline was that we see Tyrese as our point guard of the future. And that felt like a very telling statement because when Malcolm left the Milwaukee Bucks to sign with the Indiana Pacers and in restricted free agency, he said, my best position is point guard. 
And it felt like, you know, I'm leaving Milwaukee because that wasn't really an option for me when Eric Bledsoe and Giannis were out on the floor. I didn't get to do a lot of that. I was in a spot-up role. So when he came to the Pacers, he wanted to show he could be a point guard. Then the Pacers go out and get somebody who's their franchise point guard. And, and, and completely in defense of Kevin Pritchard when he said that, I agree with him. Tyrese has a much better feel and passing, playmaking feel than what Malcolm Brogdon does. But um, in that regard, and then soon after, like what I referenced with Carlisle, Carlisle very much said like, well, this is great because now we have two point guards on the floor. And I'm Which, not going to... That's Rick yeah, being and, a, a smart guy. Right, exactly. And he's like, you know, I'm not going to have to call plays with these two guys because they're both just so smart. We're going to have them both out there on the floor. And like I said, I never felt like there was any tension like personally between those two players. It's just... And they're not those kinds of guys either. No, from, no. from what you could tell at least. Yeah. And it's just that when all we have is this small sample size of eight games to go off of, and it's not just like, yeah, they got blown out by the Memphis Grizzlies by 30 points. But if you break it down game by game, they were a net negative in all eight games and they won some of those games. And Malcolm Brogdon himself didn't play poorly. It's just, you know, and, and defensively too, there's a little bit of a, a chasm, I guess I would call it because Malcolm Brogdon, you really don't want defending point guards. His positioning at the point of attack is not good. He can't really keep up with speedy guards. You would much rather have him defending wing players, whereas Tyrese gets overwhelmed by point guards at the point of attack. And you would rather have him off ball as well. So like, you really don't have a point of attack defender with the two of them out there and defensively, like they yeah. never had the option to play with miles Turner. Cause he was out that whole time. And their defense as a whole was dead last in the NBA after the trade deadline. Like it just flat out wasn't good. And they went to a lot of switching, but you could see what some of the defensive issues were out there with the two of them as well, where I think they gave up like 127 points per 100 with both of them out there. That's so less than ideal. Yeah. Um, those are the, the them, them, some Kemba Walker numbers right there. <laughs> um, okay. So uh, would it be fair to say at this point in, in your estimation that this is, whether it is a marriage that ends in th three weeks or whatever, six months, I don't know when the trade deadline is from here or, you know, it, uh, next off season, like this is not, you, you do not foresee this being the long-term backcourt of the Indiana Pacers. Is that fair to say? I'm kind of a, yeah. I mean, I, I, I would agree with that. I mean, they're very much pushing over the summer and I think it's somewhat purposeful. I don't, I don't know. You'd have to ask them, but they're talking about their young core a lot that we you know Tyrese, Chris Duarte, we, Isaiah Jackson. We got some of that too, which again, here. you know, leaves me with the impression that they're going to be very potentially open to moving, especially Malcolm Brogdon and Buddy Heald. And then when they're subsequent reporting, like with the Knicks, that the Pacers also have interest in Jalen Brunson because of Rick Carlisle's connection to Jalen Brunson in Dallas, that tells me that they're open to sprucing things up with whatever else that they could get that would be younger and closer to fit. Tyrese's timeline because ultimately I think like when you look at Tyrese's usage rate with Malcolm on the floor like again Tyrese by nature is going to be he's very inclusive in the way that he plays he's very deferential to his teammates but his usage was 16% when Malcolm was on the floor and 20% when Malcolm was off and again like just looking at the numbers like of everybody in the NBA who averaged over five minutes of time of possession which is like I think around 40 players the only person who averaged a lower usage among that group than Tyrese was Kyle Lowry so like you can't pin that all on Malcolm Brogdon but if you're going to try to figure out and be all in on Tyrese and let's find out what he can be, can he be an all-star for our franchise? Can he be a franchise player? Then it makes sense, particularly next season, from what I'm hearing from the draft intelligentsia, that next year's draft is going to be very deep. Yeah. That if you're not going to be that good anyways, why not find out? And, and this is, uh, 
I'm curious what you think about this because this is something that I always struggle with where it's like you so a guy like Tyrese Halliburton there's the there's the the talking points of like get once we get Brogdon out of the team it will off the team it will open the door for more of Tyrese Halliburton right now but as you just described Tyrese Halliburton is probably not ready for more right now, at least if you have an interest in like winning basketball games, like we we've had a lot of that with RJ Barrett over here. Although I would actually argue that the team improved when they um, put the ball in his hands more, but that has as much to do with Julius Randall as, as anything else. Again, neither here nor there. Um, so it's like, it makes sense. Even if eventually like, I, I, I don't know if you feel differently. I've always seen Tyrese Halliburton as like, Oh, that's the third best guy on a championship team type of, type of player. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I just, I want to see more of what he's going to be willing to do because there's moments where he does it. Like they're up in Boston and he has almost nearly a perfect game and he gets a switch against Al Horford and Al Horford surges out to him and he attacks and he has that low gather and that craft and he draws a foul and it makes you think like, you know, wow. And his numbers were sparkling during the times where the Pacers were there. So that's in part where I do want to see it. Like if it was just me and I'm the Pacers making a decision and you want to be good next year, I think that Malcolm and Tyrese can play together. There would just have to be a slight change in mentality from both of them where Tyrese realizes like I'm Tyrese Halliburton and Malcolm Brogdon realizes like, Hey, it's actually good for me to play with him because it's going to take some of the load off of me. And I'm actually really good playing second side. I'm good on secondary pick and rolls. I'm good at slot drives yeah, um, and do more of that. But like when you look at the numbers and in stack can be a little bit different than synergy, but like his pick and roll frequency really didn't change from pre-trade to post-trade. And we don't know, is that the primary bend in the defense or is that a second side? I don't know that completely, but I did see a lot of Malcolm Brogdon initiating the offense. I just think that that would need to change a bit. But ultimately, I think if I were the Pacers, I would land on the side of Malcolm's going to be 30. Tyrese yeah. and Chris and Isaiah Jackson are all currently under 25. Chris will be turning 25 um, or just did. I don't remember when his birthday is, but close to it. Um, it's not a, not a young second like, player. From a timeline <laughs> standpoint, it just makes sense to me. And it's kind of, it's kind of the same opinion. And I'll, I'll get it from you guys about the Knicks is it's kind of like, why, like for what reason continue on with that? Like, especially if right now, if you're telling me that a team would be willing to give the Pacers a first round pick this year or next year for Malcolm Brogdon, I think you probably do that. So that's the thing. I think like there's two conversations that I, have with myself because I, I talk to myself about this stuff a lot, which is like, on one hand, I know Malcolm Brogdon is in a lot of ways, the perfect Tibbs point guard. He's, I mean, in some ways I, I almost look at him as like a better version of Alfred Payton and the fact that he stuck with Alfred Payton. And there may have been some other reasons for that, which again, we don't need to get into right now, but like Alfred Payton wouldn't just turn on any Nick game from the season not this past year, the year before that. And it's like, you're going to see a guy who's like, this person should not be a starting point guard in the NBA. And it's not like they didn't have some other options that they could have gone to, but Peyton was, did the things that Tibbs needed a Tibbs point guard to do. He drove the lane relentlessly. He got in there for rebounds. You know, he, um, you know, he, he at least most of the time made the offensive player work, you know, even if he was not great about getting around screens and whatnot, but like he, he did the things. And the one thing he didn't do was shoot. And like you go over to Brogdon, big guy can, you know, do some of the same things. He drives a ton. 
I, you know, from at least from what the numbers suggest, and as you were just talking about before, um, the shooting is Malcolm Brogdon a good shooter? I, I don't know what the answer to that question. Yeah. So when you look at his last season in Milwaukee before he came into Indiana, that was the 50, 40, 90 year. Yeah. And when you look at the numbers, like 73% of his attempt of his threes were off the catch that year because he's just playing off of Giannis's, you know, inverse gravity, like very few. Like, I think I looked, yeah, I looked up this number before I hopped on here. 81% of his three point attempts that last season in Milwaukee were wide open. So he wow. basically had no contested threes. Now he comes to Indiana and because he's on ball, he's taking like a much higher share of his threes off the dribble, which he's just not as good. Like sometimes he, especially if he's going left, his pickup isn't always clean. He wants to get in an extra dribble with his right before he picks it up. And he already doesn't have a very quick release. So that gives time guys time, even if they duck under to kind of still contest it. And he was so, like, what, 33 or percent or something his first year there? Yeah, it was like, yeah, he dropped by about 10 percentage points yeah. in, the, in, the, in the first season. And again, he's kind of always injured in some way, shape or form. So you don't know how much that's impacting it. He had but, like a dislocated finger that season under Nate McMillan okay. that I think impacted his shot to a degree. Um, then but under then Nate, he picked it up yeah, under Bjorkren. Yeah, under Nate Bjorkren, it did pick up. Um, in part, I think, and I think if you asked Malcolm Brogdon, he would probably say that he missed that he didn't get to his mid-range quite as much that year. Um, a little bit more of it was off the catch to to Brogdon's credit. I mean, they Nate Bjorken was a lot more open to running offense through Sabonis and doing, you know, draw and dish from the paint than what Rick Carlisle was this season. So, but that being said, like his numbers, I mean, more of Brogdon's threes were open this season. He just wasn't making either type. He wasn't making threes off the catch at a very right high rate or off the drive. And I think, you know, you could see his burst on drives, especially before they shut him down for the 10 games with the Achilles that it was impacted and the lift on his shot. So then when he came back in the eight games, this is what was interesting. Like he was pretty much like a paint missile. Like he averaged like 22 drives um, over those eight games was averaging six free throw attempts off of those drives. But if you go back and watch like the one game against the wizards, he's just like torching them, like torching Kispert and everybody that they're throwing at him on slot drives. And to the point where they end up throwing three defenders at him by the end of the game, because he's just getting, you know, chest to shoulder advantage on everybody. But like one time Denny's guarding him and like bounces off of him. Brogdon's very strong. Denny's a good isolation defender bounces off, gives him like five feet of space to shoot a three. And Brogdon has no interest in shooting the three and drives into him again. So like he, he drew the free throw attempts, but it did seem like his shot, like being off as it was, was impacting some of his shot selection to a degree even when he came back. So um, I think that the off the catch shooting, like I think Tyrese only assisted Brogdon like seven or eight times. I want to say in those eight games, like any, I mean, interesting total. Yeah. Like, and, and part because he wasn't, he wasn't making a threes off the catch to it. I mean, it was better than before, but still like, and just as a point of reference, like I think he assisted Tristan Thompson in four games, like seven times. And Tristan Thompson played exactly four games for the Indiana Pacers. So uh, we, we had some similar uh, interesting numbers here between uh, Julius Randle and, and Mitchell Robinson. It's funny, the, the little the little nugget you uncover um, as you dig into this stuff. I, I, I mean, I think that if they traded for Brogdon, it would show that Tibbs has a significant weight still within the organization because I think it's pretty clear that he would like a good starting point guard and one that could, you know, kind of do the things that he wants him to do or wants that from that position. Um, and like you talked about driving 22 times a game over those eight games, that's, I mean, talk about Tibbs dream. 
I just don't know. Again, like there's two problems here. One is, as you just said, like, why? What What are the Knicks, what are the Knicks getting from trading for Malcolm Brogdon, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, he's, I, I don't foresee him being, you know, any kind of a significant part of like the package for the next guy that, you know, whoever they really want down the road. So it's like, okay, you, you, win some more games this year, you know, you, you take time away from the younger players. Um, but then the other part of it is the cost. And like I said, toward, before the season was even over, I'm like, whatever the next draft pick is, if it's not, if they don't jump up that pick Evan Fournier to Indiana for Brogdon, it, it's the most obvious trade uh, that I could see. And since then, I think I've maybe come off of that a little bit and I'm more like, you know, two of the Knicks lesser wanted contracts. I think they like Fournier um, and they, there's some other guys that they would like to get rid of more. And if they are giving up, you know, the 11th pick, I, I don't, I mean, from your perspective, whatever the salary is, it is, I, that's probably less interesting. D- is that, do you think the Pacers would do that trade? I would imagine from my perspective, it would be silly not to, but I don't know if you have a different view. No, I, I mean, if the Knicks are offering you a first round pick this year or next year, I think you do it. I mean, especially number 11, because the Pacers have a number six, it's potential that they could package both those together and move up if they really like somebody. Um, and, and Kevin Pritchard, it wasn't in the public media availability, but he did have quotes with um, two of the local beat reporters sidling, I believe, where he essentially said that like adding more young talent is exciting, kind of leaving the impression to me that they would like to add potentially more than one or two players in this draft. Interesting. So if they could get another pick, um, I wouldn't be completely surprised by that. But yeah, I mean, I, I just think for the Pacers perspective, for he, for Brogdon or Buddy, which Tyrese had better results with Buddy, which I mean, kind of makes sense because they've always played together. Tyrese yeah. has a lot more experience playing with Buddy than he did with only eight games of Malcolm Brogdon and no training camp. But like, just for point of reference, Tyrese's usage rate did not change in the minutes with Buddy. It didn't go down a bunch like it did with Brogdon. And also, um, they actually outscored opponents when Tyrese and Buddy were on the floor and Brogdon was off. Really? Very, very slightly, they were a positive, which says something because they were not yeah. a good basketball team. <laughs> I, no, I, I know. I, you know what? I think Buddy, I think Buddy Hill gets a better at. I think Buddy Hield is, I don't know if I'd call him like the perfect sixth or seventh man in the, for the NBA today, but I, he's certainly an expensive one. But like, you know, he has a definite NBA skill and he knows how to use that skill really well. And that's a good thing to have. I think, I mean, I, I don't, it's, it's not a great contract, but I don't think it's a terrible one either. Well, and he showed some secondary skills for sure that he wasn't really doing in Sacramento. The spacing was a little bit different. I think the ways that Rick Carlisle used him opened him up a little bit more. And because he had the greenest green light and was starting, which was clearly important to him in Sacramento, he got to have the starting role and do what he wanted to do. When he was in pick and roll situations, he was a more frequent passer. He could do stuff from slot drives and be a connective passer. But in the back of my head, it's kind of like when you feel good about Buddy Heald, it's probably the time to trade Buddy (laughs) Heald. That's... I like that. Um, I'm trying to, before we move on from Brian, I, I just the because you you brought up the the usage rate and how it was very high or has been very high at times in Indiana. Like I, that's the other thing I always wonder about these situations. It's like just because it is better for a player to have a lower usage rate, and it's better for the team, and it's better for him in myriad ways. Like it doesn't obviously it doesn't always mean the player is going to do the thing that is best for him or, you know, for his team. And I just wonder, like, 
if Malcolm Brogdon, and again, I'm, I should probably just come out and say it. I don't want them to trade for Malcolm Brogdon. And it's not because I don't think he's a good basketball player. It's not because I don't think he could help them. I just, for me, I'm like where your mindset seems to be with the Pacers about what how they should approach this year. That's how I like the Knicks to approach this year. I don't always get what I want, though. Um, so it feels like if he comes here and Malcolm Brogdon is the starting point guard of the New York Knicks, he's going to approach it like I'm the starting point guard of the New York Knicks. And he's going to, you know... And what does that mean for, you know, RJ Barrett, who again, fourth year player now, he's, he, he needs on ball reps and he grew with on ball reps last year. So I, I don't know how that's going to go, but yeah. No, I don't completely disagree there because I mean, it's not just the wear and tear with Brogdon. I think long term, like I term him as a 1.75, which means mm. he's a combo guard, but I think he needs to be and more of an off-ball role, but I do think he's capable of running offense. I mean, to be fair to him, I think he's a very good player, just like you said. I mean, in the first season that he was there with Sabonis, when they were running pick-and-roll in two-man game, it was like a guaranteed bucket. Like, you just knew that the two of them had that degree of craft. But then the longer he was in the point guard role, you kind of started seeing teams scheming for him more and more, where it was more weaking. They were seeing more unders. And for whatever reason, they didn't use a lot of rescreens. I don't know if Nate Bjorkren just wanted to get paint touches out of that and move the ball, but they weren't really giving Sabonis as much breathing room to do the rescreening. And then this year, it was kind of the opposite, where early in the season... Brogdon was seeing a lot of blitzing and traps and they were having like a minor allergy to getting the ball to the middle of the floor. And he wasn't always finding the angles there. So like he can make plays for other people. I just don't think it needs to be his overall, you know, main job a hundred percent of the time yeah. for you to get the best out of him. But like what you mentioned with quickly, I mean, quickly and RJ both oh, I love over the back end of the season. I mean, I love quickly. especially quickly. I mean, I know what is it. It's like what I mentioned with Tyrese, like he doesn't always get, deep drives, but I do think he did a little bit more of that showed more change. Both of them showed more changing and pacing. I felt, um, quickly being able to get a little bit deeper off of floater range just makes difference when, you know, teams actually have to defend and rotate over to him. And when he was attacking more at full speed as well, I felt too. So his, um, his drives were getting a lot better and he, he adjusted to, I, I don't know if I shouldn't be, pres- I was going to say he adjusted to the, the new foul calling, rules, but well, I don't it felt know like he mixed in a mid range jumper in addition to the floater too. He, like, he's yes, he did. He, he's just so crafty and he just, he's a really smart player and he works really freaking hard and like watches a lot of film. He's always in the gym. That's something that Tibbs always talks about and, and loves him for that reason. Um, but again, like it, it, I don't think Emmanuel quickly is like the long-term answer starting point guard for the New York Knicks. If they're trying to, you know, eventually do something, but for, for this season, I personally would rather see him, be the starting point guard than than a guy like Brogdon. And again, I say that and I'm like, I could sit here and also acknowledge like, you know what? If Brogdon was a little willing to take a bit of a, a bit more of a backseat, it could make sense with him and RJ. Um, and whether it ends up being Fournier or they move Fournier to a six-man role and they put Grimes, who's a kid that we like here from last year's draft, um, in into the starting lineup because he gives a little bit more defense and just really good at spot up shooting. Um, I don't know, but we'll see which direction they want to go. Miles Turner. We, we don't need to have a long conversation with about because we, we already did that once. And I, I just don't think he's that interesting. It, is he going to be here next year? Like you, or he, I shouldn't say here. He, is he going to be there with you next year? Yeah. So he's entering a contract year, which I think is the biggest swing element in that decision-making. I would imagine that if he isn't going to sign an extension, Um, that you probably need to look at moving him because, you know, you don't want to lose him for nothing next year. 
And in part, like I'm somewhat biased on this, that if he isn't going to sign an extension at a reasonable number, I think you kind of just need to get that done potentially because the Pacers have had so many segmented seasons the last three years between like, well, we need to bring Victor back so that he can rebuild his value, but we all know he's not going to be here long-term The yeah. last year. Like they already know that TJ and Karis are going to be hurt for the beginning of the year. And then within like, you know, the first month and a half of the season, it comes out that they're shopping pretty much everybody. So it's just a waiting game of, okay, well, whoever's going to be moved, let's move them. And then this new regime comes in with Tyrese and Buddy. And then it's like, well, maybe Brogdon will play. Maybe Miles will play. Maybe they won't. Like, I would just like to see them enter next season with whatever the roster is going to be to field that roster and be like, I'm not saying that you as a GM wouldn't make changes if you need to, but it's felt very much like they've been somewhat on the fence the last two years. Like we're running this back because we have another coaching change and we don't really like the offers that are out there. So we're going to try to make it work. But once we see a deal that we like, we're going to make a move, which I understand from a front office roster building way, them being patient and waiting for the Kings to get impatient was smart business. But it works to a certain point. Yeah. Unless you end up at a place like the Knicks are at right now with our starting center, Mitch Robinson, who can just walk to any team that has cap space that, that he would like to. And uh, there's not a blessed thing that they could do about it, whether they, you know, work out a sign and trade for an exception or something that will, you know, but that's like, yeah, they shouldn't be in this position. And the Pacers, it sounds like are potentially if they don't figure something out a year away from being in that position with miles Turner. And the, the interesting other parallel here is like last summer probably would have been the time to shit or get off the pot, excuse my French, with with Mitch, but he got hurt and he didn't play for the last however many games. And now here we're sitting with Miles Turner and it's like, oh, look what happened. Like what I, I don't even know what his trade value. I legitimately have no concept of what his trade value is. Exactly. Right Cause that's what I was going to add in because in the back of my head or just like from a coverage standpoint, it's like, it'd be nice to know what this roster is going to be and that you're going to start <laughs> with whatever roster yeah. you're going to have. But exactly what you just said, he didn't finish the end of the season. Like I believe in street clothes had the average games missed for people with a stress reaction in their foot was 20 games and miles missed, I believe 39. So Mm. it was a lot more, but again, we don't completely know. Like I believe they (laughs) said that miles was ready to play, but then there was some back to backs at the end of the season that he wouldn't have been able to play. in. so it was kind of like, what's the point. And also in the grand scheme of things, what was the point? Because you really don't want him to come back, injure that foot. And then, you know, if you do want to trade him this summer, then the trade value really is completely tanked. If he goes and it's, Oh, if he gets another, yeah. Yeah. If it becomes like what TJ Warren's situation is, then you both put yourself in a bad spot. So, but in miles, case, like I do think in the back of my head that if he does come back next season and he can show, look, everybody, I'm healthy. Both of my feet that caused me to miss time at the back end of both the last two seasons are fine. And also I'm playing solo five. Tyrese Halliburton is a really good playmaker. And what we've seen from the Pacers with Goga Batadze and Isaiah Jackson is both of their two point percentages were higher and their jobs were easier with Tyrese on the floor than when he wasn't on the floor. So if, if miles can be a little bit more productive in those minutes, even if he doesn't sign the extension, then maybe it's a case like Victor Oladipo where, Hey, because we brought him back and went through that little bit of pain waiting, you know, for the right <laughs> deal to materialize, yeah. we did get better value than we otherwise would have been. So I could understand a measured approach, but at the same time, like it's kind of like with Malcolm and buddy, it's how much better are these players going to make the Pacers? Are you That's, actually going to be a playoff team or a, a frisky playing tournament team who could make the playoffs? Cause if not like, 
I think it's time to try to get draft picks and get other young players that fit well with this core, even I, though Miles is younger. Like I was about to, Miles is only 25 and they clearly they have a lot of defensive issues and he would be an upgrade in that area. Like he will be part of the defensive solution. I, I don't know if you guys feel the same way about him as we feel about. Well, I don't think I definitely don't think you feel the same way about him as we feel about Julius over here. But like Julius is only 27. You know, it's not like he's old, but he is. He represents like the this one this this certain direction and Obi Toppin, who uh, again similar to Chris Dorte on you guys was older for a rookie, so he's he's not exactly a young man either. But like he's kind of like okay, let's just let's get the new let's let's get to the point already. Let's stop like spinning our wheels. But then the other part with with Turner that's interesting to me is like you know thinking about the interview that he had with the Athletic last year and talking about that he wants this and that for his role. Like, I don't know, would it be the worst? Like, what would I'm trying to think? Would, would that be a good thing for Indiana if he got more of an opportunity to do? I, I don't know. What does he want to do on ball? But does that increase his, his trade value? Does like, who knows? I, I, just, I mean, I'm in curious. exit interviews, he was very adamant that, like, I think he had, I don't, this is me paraphrasing because I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but it was like, people forget that I'm very comfortable in my natural position, which, like, I, I get it. Like everybody has the right to feel the what position they're stronger at. I mean, the Paul George whole situation with the Pacers, he didn't want to play the four. Larry Bird wanted him to play the four. I understand why Paul George didn't want to play the four. So like, I don't begrudge Miles Turner that he wants to play the five, but at the same time, like also this isn't the first time he's played the five. So I don't think that I've completely forgotten what he can do at the five. Like I see him play minutes at the five every game. And I also, the last three playoff series that the Pacers were in, he started at the five. Like Sabonis was not the starter. He wasn't in the bubble. He wasn't the starting center against the Boston Celtics. And he wasn't the starting center against the Cleveland Cavaliers. So I do think Miles has shown some strides since then. So I don't think I fully still understand what exactly he wanted in that article, other than to just play the five and be able to get involved in more screening actions. And like, cause I mean, if he wants to be doing more of the Sabonis type stuff, I don't really know why he would, because it's not like, you know, he's a guy who's going to run offense. And two, I don't really think Rick Carlisle wants to play like that. Otherwise he would have been doing would it with, otherwise he would have been doing it with Sabonis. I mean, it took like the first 20 games of the year for them to be doing more with elbow touches and post-ups and more triangle-like concepts that make sense and, and open up not only Sabonis's game, but especially when they started the season without Karras and without TJ Warren as scores and, you know, Brogdon and Karras were kind of ships in the night in terms of being injured one <laughs> one after the other. Like it made sense to be okay. doing more point Sabonis, more, you know, triangle concepts with Sabonis. And it took a while for them to even get to that. So if that's something that Miles wanted, like I would kind of think, well, Rick didn't really want to do it with the two-time all-star. So I kind of doubt yeah. he wanted to do it there. But I think his main complaint was he just wants to be able to play at the five spot where he gets to be the screener instead of being in the corner as much. And in that regard, like he's not, his strength is not finding his own usage. So if he is involved more in the action as the five man screening for Tyrese and Tyrese is the kind of passer that he is with the degree of eye manipulation and feel that he has, I think it is realistic that he could produce at a somewhat yeah, higher, that's, higher that's, level next year than what he's done in the past. That's what I was getting at. And then maybe that does bode, bode well for his trade value. I don't know. I just, I can't imagine. I, I would be surprised if there was a trade this summer, because again, I, I just, I can't see that like you guys agreeing on a value that some other team would like and it not. And it's tough to know what the value would even be. Like I think I I think Michael Scott of Hoops Hype said that there was some rival GMs 
which take it with a grain of salt any times it's like rival GMs. But um, some people thought that they, the Pacers could still potentially get a non-lottery first right now for pace for miles. Um, I felt whenever we talked on our last conversation, that realistic value, or I felt fair value was what the magic got for Aaron Gordon, which was a young player and expiring deal. I think at the time. Yeah. I think, but at now, the time you know, right. teams haven't seen him play because of the foot injury and probably don't know the complete extent of that miles. Like Brogdon says that he's healthy now and is prepared to play next season. So It'd be interesting. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you're a basketball junkie, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Twice a week, J.J. Redick is cooking on his podcast, The Old Man and the Three. He has guys come on in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, including Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron in Miami, and the moment Tyrese Halliburton knew Pascal Siakam would be a good fit in Indy. In addition to player interviews, every Monday, J.J. breaks down the top three things happening around the NBA with unmatched analysis, not outlandish takes, and is often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler to dive deep on rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? You won't find another outlet that covers the game as comprehensively and with such insight as JJ does it on The Old Man and the Three. Make this your companion podcast during the playoffs. Listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products, and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. 
Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Um, let's talk some draft before I let you go because uh, you watch a lot of film and I was reading a few of your draft articles before you came on and they're really good. Um, they're really, really good. Uh, it's funny because this is a four point five player. I I don't know. It's a it's a three player draft. It might also be a four player draft, but it might also be a five player draft. And then whatever whatever you want to stop at that point, um, it goes down to 11, 12, 13, some whereabouts. And then there seems to be at that point, a place where there's a very, very wide range of opinions in terms of like, who is the 14th best player? Who's the 16th best player? Who's the, so you've been looking, the point, the reason I give that backstory is you've been looking at a lot of the same guys that I've been looking at. Um, And I haven't dug as, as deeply as I would into all, as I would have liked to into all of them so far. But a few guys I do want to talk about um, who you've done your your homework on are Johnny Davis and, and Ben Matherin. To me, these are like they're they're not polar opposites, but like very different. Yeah, they, they are like they're both shooting guards. Right. Um, that's about all they have in common, but about the same size, I think. Um, they both rebound. Well, that's another thing they have in common. Um I think that's about it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just, it's very interesting for me, like, you know, the Knicks need shot creation. Then, you know, there's a, there's a shocker. Uh, Johnny Davis, he creates some shots. Uh, Ben Matherin, not a shot creator, but he does a lot of interesting stuff and he does it really well. And like, I look at him, I'm like, Oh, I get what that dude's going to be at the next level. I don't know if the Knicks are the right team for him, which is why I mean, I want to start with him for you because I loved your write-up about how he would fit into Carlisle's offense. Like is, but six, that's high, right? For him. Like what, what, what are you thinking with Matherin? Yeah. I mean, we mainly did the Matherin pod in part because we're letting people do somewhat of requests. And because he was like one of only two people that I saw that the Pacers talked to at the combine, there was actual reporting that they had been talking with him after the NBA draft lottery. And then also that he interviewed with them. So we wanted to do that one. Um, just from the standpoint of what you just said, like if people go and read that article, like Arizona runs a lot of NBA like actions and a lot of actions that the Pacers already run. So it's very easy to picture exactly how he would fit into that. Rick Carlisle likes to use movement shooters and particularly movement shooters that he can bring back to the ball. And in the sense that Tyrese Halliburton, somebody who naturally wants to play fast and Matherin's athleticism really, really unlocks and pops in the open floor. That makes a lot of sense that you had of him like just outrunning the break. And uh, I think he, he threw down a dunk right at the end yeah, of that. Like, like four Tennessee players that he just flat yeah. out outruns. That was good. Yeah. Like, um, and, 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 and to a certain degree, like I think Rick Carlisle is open and wants them to play fast, but he also still does a fair amount of play calling. Um, so, and sometimes you'll be seeing him like telling him like, hold it. Cause he wants to be able to call a play. So like, I think that if they're going to play faster and get a higher share of their their possessions in transition than a person like Matherin makes sense. And I also, because he's so good at uh, his feel for cutting and back cuts, both improv, both from an improvised standpoint and from, you know, actual play calls. I think that that would fit really well with how Tyrese plays. And if you want to see what all Tyrese can do as a primary, then having an off ball act off option like Matherin makes sense. So I think that the way that I termed it on our pods was 
and this might apply somewhat to the Knicks as well, is that Matherin would augment like the ideal versions of who both Johnny Davis and Matherin are. I think that Matherin would augment what the Pacers already do. He would augment what strengths Tyrese already has. Whereas with a guy like Johnny Davis, because of what he can do defensively, because of what his screen navigation is, and because he can do a little bit in the mid post that if a team throws linked at somebody like quickly or Tyrese Halliburton, then you also have another mode of offense there. And like the Pacers, I, I won't speak for the Knicks because they have Tom Thibodeau. They have a completely different system. Yeah. They don't have any point of attack defenders. So if you have a guy like Johnny Davis who you can throw and have that degree of screen navigation, that would pair really well with Miles Turner and, and drop or at the level. And then you could have Tyrese and, and Chris Duarte doing more off ball, which is where their instincts really shine a lot better than being on ball. So I termed it as Johnny Davis would address more of their weaknesses. So it's really a preference there of what, what from the Pacers perspective or from the Knicks, I won't speak as much to their actual offensive construction of, you know, which is more important to you being better at what you already do or evening out where your weakness is and being a little bit better at the end of the floor where you were wretched over the back end of last season. But I think the, the so the interesting part with Matherin for for us, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of the inverse because uh, I don't know if you know this, the Knicks cut less than uh, any team. Uh, in the entire NBA, they yeah. just they don't do it. Uh, it's not something. It's one of the many complaints that fans have about Tom Thibodeau. His offense is not exactly, um, you know, the most sophisticated at times, or at least that's that's not how. And it that's appears. like actually a talking point that we should have brought up with Brogdon because I'm like I'm just imagining like late games teams switching in a Tom Thibodeau offense, and it's just like the Alec Burks ISO is only with Brogdon. But <laughs> well. Yeah. Yes. That's, yeah, that's, that's correct. I mean, that's what it came down to in a lot of games when like RJ, well, when RJ was in there, he he got some more of those, but yeah, there was way too many uh, Alec Burks. Um, so let's say incidents at the end of the game <laughs> at the end of the games last year. Uh, and Alec Burks was like, I think he shot like 35% on twos this year or something ridiculous. He just, it was not what you wanted. Um, yeah. But I don't know, like, Matherin does a lot of great things. I don't know how he would be used here because they don't do the things like they don't run, you know? So are they going to run a lot more if they have, I mean, some Knicks like to run like quickly likes to run at times. Obi, God knows would run every possession if he could. And he does often run on every possession. doesn't mean he always gets the ball. Um, And Johnny Davis is like, I just, when you when you throw out the Karis Levert comp, and, and I don't think Levert's a bad player at all. I, I like Levert. I've I've said some very kind things about Levert in the past, but it's like, what is the value of like eh, shot creation in the NBA with a guy who maybe is not passing the ball as much as he should be? Right. You, know? you have to take. And I tried to I tried to parse it a little bit in that article. The Wisconsin play context, I think went into that quite a bit. I mean, they ranked sure, in the eighth, yes, yes. they ranked in the eighth percentile of spot up shooting. And you could see a lot of times, like in the one possession I used there against Michigan state, that like the corner man's defenders just camped out on the block on the strong side corner for the entire possession. He even yeah. tries like a little gravity cut and the defender doesn't move. So, I mean, he was seeing like two or three defenders every time. Now it kind of becomes like a processing thing, like to use a Pacers reference, like Aaron holiday was in summer league play and was like, putting up box scores where he was like six to 25 because they had like no surrounding shooting on that summer league team. And he was just like getting off 
every bullet in the holster. And it's like, okay, but at what point, at what point, like from a processing yeah. standpoint, do yeah. you want to see that person be able to make the play? I understand why Johnny Davis didn't do it. I yeah. think he's capable of passing. You can see him make reads. Yeah, no, no, he, film, yes, 100%. Yeah. He just doesn't always do it, which was also the case with Karras. Karras is a capable passer. He just doesn't always make those passes and doesn't always see the periphery of help defenders beyond just what his man and the screener's man are doing. But, you know, I think some, some that, people will have to think about with Johnny as well as when we talk about advantage creation and you look at Karras, there's be times on his like short mid range twos where Karras with his long strides and his herky jerky game would actually have advantage over his defender, but still stop and pop for two. Mm. In Johnny's case, there's more instances where I do think he's athletic. Um, he has Sneaky, like more, yeah. he has, he has more football like strength where he's able to work his way in tight spaces, but he doesn't, he has to play off of contact. So he's never really getting that same initial advantage. So then you do kind of wonder, is he going to be able to do that at the exact same level in the NBA? But when you're, a team, when you're a team like the Pacers, I wouldn't really yeah. be projecting him to be primary anyways. I'd be wanting to use him as a secondary playmaker away from Halliburton and then be able to use him in situations, like I said, where, you know, there's times where you're playing the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Cavs are switching Evan Mobley out to Halliburton. Halliburton wants no part of that. So, hey, let's try to post Johnny in the mid post and run a split cut above him and get a shot for, you know, Chris Duarte at the top of the key. Like that's, that's a nice wrinkle in a way that they could fit together. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of a philosophical question that you just brought up there with Benedict Matherin with regards to Thibodeau's offense versus Johnny Davis with regards to Rick Carlisle's because is adding a player going to force Tom Thibodeau to do something like, Hey, we have this guy who's, you want the answer? Cause I can give it to you right now. (laughs) Well, but like, if you have this guy who can make improvisational cuts and find his own usage, is that going to help the offense become more inventive or is it just going to remain stagnant? And you're just using this guy and it becomes stagnancy. Same with Johnny Davis. Like is having this guy going to help you to look at different areas and modes of offense, or are you just going to plug him into what you existing already have, which in Rick Carlisle's defense, their offense is pretty, pretty good as it is like it wasn't like a top 10 one but from like a process standpoint i can watch it see how they're manipulating defenders see where they're moving taggers and say yeah that's pretty good offense but it does make you question like if you just add high paced guys will a rick carlisle team that hasn't played in the it's been in the bottom five of transition you know frequency for like eight years now suddenly play fast just because they have those guys or would it just be that you have those guys and you're still not really playing in the open floor all that much yeah, I, I mean, isn't that what differentiates like the good coaches from the great coaches? Like Tom, Tom has adjusted to his offensive personnel when it's, I think, high level offensive personnel. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure I see him adjusting too much to a rookie, you know, coming yeah. in to, to, and and especially since we've we've heard reports of maybe some push and pull between him and the next front office. Um, a couple more, and then we're gonna get you out of here. Uh, are you a shade and sharp? team maybe um i think that i think that there was reporting that the pacers had met with him at the combine i don't remember that specifically but he is actually a person that i have put on my twitter that i'm not going to profile in part because like i understand like the one and done rule i think has painted us to a degree that we just think that these people that don't have one year of experience just can't possibly play in the nba when clearly you know lebron exists lots of people straight out of high school exist it's just from my standpoint you know, I'm not a general manager. I don't have access to his workouts. I haven't 
seen these incredible workouts that are apparently happening, I would just be like looking at random high school film on YouTube if I can even find it and be trying to write like a deep dive on it. So people yeah. have asked about it. I'm like, yeah, we're not going to cover Shaden, which I fully expect then that the Pacers will take him and I will have no <laughs> coverage on it because that's what always happens. <laughs> I just, he's, he is, uh, I mean, he was probably already the most fascinating player in the draft. And now after his pro day and like, there's still not a whole lot of class. It's because it seemed like he was trending. It was trending towards like, okay, Ivy's probably four. And then it's sharp and Murray and something like, you know, give or take at, at five, six. So obviously you guys are at six. And then, um, and then the other quick, well, two more quick things. I want one, um, Dyson Daniels, do you, uh, have you looked at him yet? Do you like him? Are you planning on looking at him? Because he's he's the first guy I looked at for the Knicks. Because he's he's very interesting to me. I'll just say that. Yeah, I mean, I think that I believe that the latest draft express press mock had him at six at the Pacers. He is not a person that we have done a deep dive on. That's supposed to be for next week. So spoiler okay. alert that people know that that's what we're going to be doing <laughs> next week. But um, just on the surface, I, I don't know that I think that he's probably overall the best fit with Tyrese unless the Pacers just absolutely think that he's the best player available at that spot Yeah. Um, by comparison to potentially some other options. I think that Keegan Murray fits a lot of the things that the Pacers actually have need for in addition to complementing and addressing some of the things that I think would help Tyrese in a lot of I would ways. Say, I'd like to see him next to Tyrese. That would be fun. Yeah. Like, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Like, and again, you'd have to know because Keegan was obviously the number one post-up efficiency player in the NBA and he doesn't post in a traditional way. I mean, a lot of times it's out of cuts and quick seals. He puts in his work really early. But, you know, Rick Carlisle hasn't been super amenable to using the post as an option aside from like turning a post up into a screen for a drive. So if you're not going to be really open to using the totality of what Keegan Murray can do, maybe you're not as interested. But in the sense that like when we did our draft profile on him, I pointed out that they were running like a staggered action where the first screener flips around and comes off the second, which the Pacers and a lot of NBA teams run. But like I use the example like this is something they ran for Justin Holiday. And Keegan comes off that flows into side to side action and then cuts and out of that cut stops on a dime and goes into a post up has to reach outside of the radius to get the ball spins. And it's, it's basically like him hunting a jump shot and that's how quick it is. So like how many players do you know that can go from coming off screen for three to diving into a post up and in the reverse, if he doesn't get the ball in the post, there's times where like he would come off a screen from his brother at the top of the key. So like imagine Julius Randall. Well, maybe Julius does do this, but like Sabonis, imagine Sabonis coming out of the post up and being like, okay, I didn't get the ball. I'm going to go fly off a middle pin down and go shoot a three. Yeah. That's not a, that's not a thing that happens (laughs) here uh, ever, but it would be nice if Julius did things when he didn't have the ball. Um, he, he sets the occasional screen. I shouldn't say that. It's, it's nice of him to contribute in those ways. Um, the last, the very last one I want to ask you, do you guys think you, or do you think you guys will um, keep the pick or, or move it, move down, try to move up like that gun to your head right now? Yeah. I mean, when Kevin Pritchard talked, he referenced the draft in Portland where I think they made like five plus trades moving up and around in the draft to land LaMarcus Mm -hmm. Aldridge and Brandon Roy. So I think that they will be very aggressive if they think that they can get an extra pick or if there's somebody that they really like and want to move up to see. So, I mean, there was a lot of coverage here in Indiana because they were at the CAA pro day and they were seeing their entire front office was seen there watching Jaden Ivy, but like to add some context, I mean, Ivy and Halliburton, 
Jaden Ivey wasn't the only player working out. Like when you watch the, Griff, yeah, yeah no. they were there and they, like, you could see them sitting in the background of the AJ Griffin workout of other player workouts that were there as well. That doesn't mean they don't like Jaden. I just think that the likelihood of him falling to six, I don't think is very good. Like, I think no, they have to I, be moving up to find some way to do that. Um, I do think it's kind of interesting because I think that Tyrese would optimize Jaden, but I'm not entirely sure that I think that Jaden would optimize Tyrese. So again, that's somewhat of a philosophical question. Like maybe that doesn't bother you, but um, I, I don't of- yeah, No, I, I was going to say, I, I like, I'm trying to figure out as I'm starting to look at Jaden Ivy, because there's been some rumors around here of like, what, what is his ideal? What does what an ideal offense look like surrounding him? And it's, that's something I, I don't, think we quite know the answer to yet because he has a unique combination of skills. Right. And because of Purdue, like, and Matt Painter's offense is very sophisticated and he was obviously working around, you know, Travion Williams and, and Edie as well in terms of what their strengths were in the post. But, you know, part of the good thing about that is we do have a sample of seeing Jade and Ivy do things like what Victor Oladipo used to do around Sabonis, where it's like, mm. okay, we're going to use your speed in the corner and you're going to almost play possum and be leaning over bending and the, the universal sign of decoy. Then you're going to explode around those screens and get downhill. And, you know, they ran a lot of that stuff. A lot of those gut DHOs in addition to after, you know, I want to say it was around the Illinois and Michigan game where they started letting Ivy do more out of the high pick and roll and what you'd see in the NBA where like, I, I think the common talking point is like, well, imagine, imagine Jade and Ivy when the paint isn't clogged anymore and he can just, you know, get into the paint and be driving and kicking. I don't really love the John Morant comp completely. Like I know it's it's, unfair. Yeah. I know that his, his mom was an assistant coach with the Memphis Grizzlies and he has worked out with John Morant in the past, but like, I don't think that they have the same passing creativity at this point in time for him to be a guy who's just, you know, getting into the paint relentlessly and making those types of passes. I think he can grow into that some more, but, um, I see him more and I don't really like player comps, but I do like the idea of what, how Victor was used, especially in his first season, with the Pacers getting to do pick and roll stuff, but also being able to play around, you know, dribble handoffs and stuff that Sabonis would do and and come off screens as well. And I think that we've seen both sides of that with Jaden. So, but like um, Vic needed to play, he needed to play next to a point guard. He was at his best when he was playing next to a point guard. And I think that's going to be the case with Ivy too, but I don't know. Is that is, 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 I guess maybe Halliburton could be that. I don't know. Um, I'm fascinated by this draft because I think there's going to, as you kind of, intimated with what Pritchard said. I think there's going to be movement. Um, I think the Knicks are going to try to move up. I Would you do uh, six for 11 in a future very lightly protected Knicks first? I don't think they'd do it because I don't think it gets them Ivy. But. Yeah, I mean, I guess it would have to depend what they really think about their draft board and how much they would like. I mean, I, I think that most teams are probably going to like next year's draft better than this one. So don't the Knicks probably. have... The, the Knicks have Dallas's pick next year, right? Am I correct in that? Yeah, but it's like... Great. Yeah. 27th pick in the draft. So ah, exactly. So um I'm guessing that's the one that the Knicks would be willing to give up. So <laughs> well, I'm sure, oh my God. I'm sure they're gonna be tossing that pick around um like crazy if if it would actually get them something. But I um I don't know. I have a five of I don't think they're getting into Ivy range unless they give up a pick in next year's draft that has a chance to be good. And we got Brock Aller over here and he's like the master of the pick protection. So we'll see how my sense, my general sense is that after the season, the Pacers just had, which they kind of have to be disappointed with given, I mean, even with the circumstances of the injuries and everything else, like you don't come out of kind of talking about, not that they were guaranteeing a trip to the playoffs, but that was the goal when they hired Mm -hmm. Rick Carlisle to come out of that. And then, you know, 
be one of the five worst teams in the NBA. I think that they're going to want that talent in the gym next year. Okay. But that's just my initial impression. And for me personally, and this is not me speaking on behalf of them, if they're going to make a short-term move and be trading that pick for a player, like I think you need to be doing that with assurances that you're going to be getting the type of player who's going to, you're not just going to be doing it with the ceiling of being a tough out anymore. Cause they've been, oh, doing, no, they've been yeah. doing that long enough. Like if you're going to make a short-term move, it needs to be a short-term move that, you know, you're going to be potentially in the playoffs and moving deeper into the playoffs, not just more of like, well, we traded this pick for a veteran who's it makes our complimentary core more complimentary and <laughs> we're going to be a plucky out. Like it, it can't be any more of that. No, the Pacers have been, uh, I mean, look, it's more than the Knicks could say for most of this time, but the Pacers have been like a plucky out. It feels like for, for long enough. And, um, yeah, it's been a decade since, uh, the, the George and Hibbert and, all those, all those teams. So it seems uh, wild. That's only been a decade or that it's been, it's been 10 years already. Yeah. No, it it feels fast and slow both at the same time. Cause that's literally the last time they won a playoff series. Oh yeah. 2013, 14 is the last time they won a playoff series. Yeah. Because they're, um, they got, what was it? They got, uh, no, they, that's right. They took the Cavs to seven. That was such a fun series. They took the Cavs to seven games. Yeah, and then they they went deeper against the Raptors before Paul George was traded, but they got swept by the Celtics, got swept by the Heat, yeah. and then haven't been in the playoffs since. So, yeah, um, yeah, I'm curious to see what you guys do. I just, I don't. It's funny. I don't. I'm not. I promise. I'm not keeping you much longer. But like, you bring up like who, whether they want to want to try to win games next year. It's like you look around the league, you know, especially like a team like the Knicks. Like the Knicks theoretically should be a team that would at least think about gearing themselves up to have a run at a top five pick. Um, I don't think for a second, they're going to do it. Not intentionally, maybe by accident. It's like, you look around the league, like what's, where's the team, you know, I mean, I guess, okay. Orlando. Okay, fine. Um, I, OKC, are they going to go, go run it back again with, uh, you know, sitting uh, SGA after the all-star break? I guess you could pull that trick one more time but like how many i'm houston i don't know there's like there's just not well, a lot of teams. and exactly that's kind of the point like even if the pacers and the knicks are better like where's really the yeah where does clear, better get you <laughs> yeah where's i mean where's the yeah. clear spot for upward yeah. mobility currently in the eastern conference like where are those yeah. other teams going i mean Nowhere. even even if you look at detroit i expect that what i saw of them late in the season that oh, they I, will be better yes so, they will they're they're I 100% agree with that like if you t- again if you told me detroit was going to have a better record than the knicks this year i'd be like okay that's Sure. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it w- wouldn't shock me. I've kept you for far too long. Caitlin, could you, uh, for any very silly person who does not know where to find you and does not know where to read yourself and listen to you, could you let them know uh, where they could do that? Yeah. So my Twitter handle is at C2 underscore Cooper. I'm at Indy Cornrows and we're currently all we're doing is draft content there. So watching a sample of games, recording a podcast that goes along with the post. And we have about two or three more of those to get through for the draft in addition to then kind of pivoting into second round picks too. So doing second round picks too. Well, I think that what I, our plan, uh, the plan that we're doing, we're not going to be this doing them like we're not going to be doing them like we're currently doing them. Like it's not going to be this level of um, deep insight. It'll probably be like lightning round. Like we'll do a okay. podcast with several of them on. So, okay. I mean, that's really, that's awesome, Bo. Um, so again, if you're listening to this and you're a Nick fan, which if you're listening to this, you probably are, um, your deep dives are awesome. And it doesn't matter what team you root for. You're going to learn a lot about um, all of these guys. And I saw you had 
you sent out a tweet like three days ago, which had links to all of the five or six or whatever it is that you've done. Um, so they're really easy to find. We can just go to IndieCornrows.com, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So yep. super easy. They'll all be pretty close to the top there. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're excellent. So uh, yeah, go check that out. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on again. All right. Thanks for checking out another episode of the Knicks Film School podcast. We hope you enjoyed that convo. Caitlin is amazing. If you are not following her, if you're not reading her stuff, I promise you, you do not need to be a Pacers fan or care about the Pacers to get a lot out of what she does, both in podcast form and in written form. So make sure you go check that out. Uh, as always, if you dig the show, leave us a five-star rating, write a, write a fun little review. Um, we like that stuff. And Andrew, am I forgetting anything? Yes. Um, what it's not even that you're forgetting anything. It's that I would like to interject a shout out, if I may. You may. We have a patron that is also a, a loyal listener to the pod and watcher of the YouTube channel. Uh, he goes by Eggers Island when you see his name on playback or in the uh, YouTube super chats um, sometimes. Uh, and he is my cousin, Ryan, um, mutual friend of Dan Favalli, who comes on the pod every now and then from Bleacher mm-hmm. Report. Uh, Ryan is getting married this weekend. And hey. I'm, I'm heading down to Nashville for the wedding. Uh, tomorrow. So, cuz, congratulations. Looking forward to celebrating you. Uh, on behalf of the Knicks Film School podcast, uh, he's a big fan of yours, John. He's a big fan, gigantic fan of Jeremy's. I think the exact phrasing was like, I'm a smarter Knicks fan because of you two, like because of wow. cap or no cap. So, that's nice. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, cuz. Um, congratulations, Ryan. There you go. Have the Knicks Film School podcast. Congratulations, bud. Wedded bliss. Yes. One day. <laughs> One day. One day. For you. Soon. Yeah, one day. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Take care.